With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we're back from Thanksgiving holidays, back to the real world. How's the Magic Streets been treating you? Pretty well. I have been really diving into the five color nonsense that I believe Throne of Eldraine has to offer, and I am loving every minute of it, closing in on 200 drafts and not getting bored just yet. Yeah, I have seen some sweet, sweet screenshots on Twitter. You texted me the other day that you had a sweet five color fires of invention deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought you would be very, very proud. Yeah, looked pretty good. How about you? How are things rolling through December for you? Things are going well. We had our Christmas concert on Thursday, knocked that out of the park, got our doubleheader basketball pep band game out of the way on Friday, and I had a chance to play some MTG Arena yesterday. So if you check in on the MTGO leaderboard, I have 70 total drafts, 142 and 65 overall record, 18 trophies and a 69% win rate. And in that best of one arena life, I'm now up to 13 drafts. 63 and 30, three trophies, and still hanging at a 68% win rate. Ben, why have you and I been playing Arena again? Yeah, I think we're going to check in on the bots a little bit next week and sort of see what's going on there now that we're in probably the final iteration of what the bots are. Yeah, I went back. So on Monday, Magic Online was in downtime for maintenance. And so I was like, well, I'm going to stream. So I guess I'll play on Arena. And I dipped back into Ravnica Allegiance drafts, which were also a best of one offering. So I was like, yeah, I'll check this format out. And it feels like it's very much the same as the last iteration of the bots. Like, I don't know if they update them once, like the format goes out of rotation. It was basically just like Simic or Orzov was like the decks to draft and you couldn't get a gate basically to save your life. <laughs> um, so if you check in on MTGO for me, I have 194 drafts, 386 to 179, 61 trophies, trying to close in on my trophies being the same number of your drafts. And I've got a 68% win rate. Very nice. Yeah. So today we're going to do sort of a little split show. I don't think either of these topics were enough to fill an entire episode, but I think both of them together are going to make for uh, a lot of good conversation. We're going to be checking in on some keep or mull decisions that you and I have encountered in our Magic the Gathering digital streets. And then we're also going to check in on sideboarding, sort of sideboarding in general, but then in specific with uh, Throne of Eldraine as like the lens to look through sideboarding at. But before we get into any of that, we're going to talk about the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. Uh, the show, of course, will always be free, but we got some perks for you. The first perk for anyone who wants to give back to the show is the Lords of Limited Discord. It is hopping. It's popping. It's a lovely place to discuss all things limited, and I highly recommend checking it out if you are at all interested in having people look at your decks or having 
decks to look at, drafts to do, draft logs to look at. It's just like chock full of good, good information. Um, some higher rewards for higher tier donations as well. And each week we want to shout out new patrons. This week we're welcoming to the fold Simon, Aaron G, Josh, Aaron C, Hunter, Jordan, Cody, Logan, and Keldon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. And I just want to reiterate how awesome the Discord is and how proud I am of the Discord. Just some of the conversations that go on in there and some of the ways that people build each other up, like after people are, you know, saying they've had a tough time with variants or whatever. We had a lot of good discussions going on about variants and life and how to handle all that stuff was just just a warm fuzzy feeling in the discord reading a lot of stuff this week yeah agree that that discussion thread really made me happy all right so i think we're going to move things on over to a round table here i had a pretty interesting draft so ethan would you like to take a seat and check this out with me i would love to i'm so i'm so upset that we're not doing the one that had the note drafted poorly and played poorly <laughs> yeah i don't i went back and looked at that draft log so i we write in the spreadsheet that's available as one of the patreon tier rewards we write notes about the deck or whatever you know things that happen in the rounds that's where i track my finals losses i know it's your favorite <laughs> um and i saw one of them that was an o2 that said drafted poorly played poorly went back and looked at the draft and it didn't look too bad so i must have made some bonehead play mistakes and just extrapolated that i was a horrible person yeah sounds sounds good sounds like you're really building yourself up there yeah. So pack one, pick one. You see the following cards as options. There are no top commons in contention here. So moving on to the uncommons, there's a shambling suit, three mana for the star three with power equal to the number of artifacts or enchantments you control. Lock dragon, the is it hybrid three two flyer when it ETBs or attacks, you can discard a card if you do draw a card. And your rare folio of fancies, one in a blue for the artifact. Players have no maximum hand size. I had no idea that was text on that card. XX tap. Each player draws X cards and tuna blue tap. Each opponent puts a number of cards equal to the number of cards in their hand from the top of their library into their graveyard. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty weak pack. And so it's nice that your rare is a really strong one to start off your draft with. Though I will say, I think we talked about this, you know, when we were talking about Folio of Fancies as a card that we missed on and then got, you know, appropriately high on i'm a little lower on it these days because i don't think it just like goes in any blue deck i'm not happy to just jam this wherever and i also think it takes like a bit of deck building considerations specifically with having like cheap interaction like so tinies or frogifies or runaway togethers or merfolk secret keepers or whatever to pair with this so that you can afford to pump the mana into it and not die but i do think that it is the best card to take out of this pack isn't that what blue wants to do sort of anyway though uh it depends though like i mean i feel like in some blue red draw two decks i wouldn't play this in blue green like ramp splash decks i'm not sure that you want to play this because like a lot of those decks are about like you're probably going to start a little bit behind and then you're going to let the power level of the cards that you're splashing for or ramping to take over i think that blue doesn't always want to be on that like so tiny secret keeper game plan yeah that's fair but then you're always bringing it out of the board in certain matchups right oh, even for if sure. it doesn't even if it doesn't make your main deck it's still going to be an absolute a silver bullet out of the sideboard yes absolutely i love that you're like dovetailing or sort of giving a little bit of uh you know foreshadowing to our topic later on in the episode look i'm good at what i do man <laughs> all right moving on to pack one pick two you see the following cards as options Scorching Dragonfire, one in red for the instant. Deal three to target creature or planeswalker. If that would die this turn, exile it instead. Fierce Witchstalker, two green green for the 4-4 trample. When it ETBs, make a food token. Sir Conrad the Grim, three black black, five four. 
Whenever a creature dies or a creature card is put into a graveyard from anywhere other than the battlefield or a creature card leaves your graveyard, Sir Conrad the Grim deals one damage to each opponent and you can pay one on a black to have each player put the top card of their library into their graveyard. Then Keeper of Fables is your other uncommon that's worth considering. Three green green for the four five. Whenever one or more non-human creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, draw a card. I mean, I think you and I have said this on the show before that we're both on Sir Conrad as being the best uncommon in the set. And so with no rare to consider, I believe I would just windmill slam that as my pack one pick too. Yep, I think so. So we got Folio and Sir Conrad potentially on our way to a nice blue black control deck. Move on to pack one pick three. See the following cards as options. There's another Scorching Dragon Fire, Scalding Cauldron, one mana for the artifact. You can pay three tap sack to deal three damage to a creature. Ardenvale Tactician, one white white for the two three flyer that has Dizzying Swoop as the adventure. One on a white tap up to two target creatures at instant speed. There's a Marleaf Pixie. This is my new favorite card. Yeah. Blue green for the 2-2 flyer tap to add green or blue. Mad Ratter chilling here. Three and a red for the 1-2. Whenever you draw your second card each turn, make two 1-1 black rat tokens. And Arcanist Owl, my other love in this format, the Azorius Uncommon Hybrid. This is 3-3 flyer for four Azorius mana. And when it ETBs, look at the top four and you can select an artifact or enchantment from among them and put it in your hand. Yeah, so I am sort of surprised to see what you took here because I think especially with Folio of Fancies in our pile already. And I think with, I believe it's the most powerful card in the pack, I would be interested in taking Arcanist Owl here. I know it sort of decides that we're not playing Sir Conrad, but basically anything we take here isn't going to be blue or black. So it's going to be dipping into a third color in some way. And so we're not going to be able to make a pick here unless we take Scalding Cauldron. But I think, you know, basically Dragonfire, Tactician, owl and even mad ratter are probably all just like more powerful picks to make at this early stage of the draft than cauldron that i wouldn't even consider that here so i would be on arcanist owl just to like pair with the folio pretty nicely yeah i was torn between arcanist owl and ardenvale tactician and the reason i ended up landing on tactician was exactly what you said so if we if we take owl here we're guaranteed to either not play sir conrad or the owl mm-hmm. one of the two like so we're, we're definitely not able to use all three of our picks for sure and it's, it's a little more constricting, right? And then if you take Tactician, you can pair with white-black or white-blue, or you can still go blue-black, which I guess you can still do with the Arcanist Owl. Yeah, now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe it's not that big of a cost to take the Arcanist Owl. My only issue is that I think when you take Tactician here, it's essentially like it's a... I mean, it's not like it's a white-black card, but you don't want to put Tactician and uh, uh, Folio in the same deck. No, that's not necessarily true for me. Well, okay. I, I think at the end of the draft, if you end up in white blue, that I would just be like, oh, I wish I had Arcanist Owl here. I just think Tactician and Folio are going to be pulling you in two pretty different directions in terms of how your deck shapes out. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So I did end up selecting the Tactician there. Moving on to pack one, pick four. You see the following cards as options. Commons, Seven Dwarves is a card that's starting to stick out to me quite a bit. I like I like Seven Dwarves. Yeah. I think he's above replacement level. There's also a Charmed Sleep, one blue-blue enchant creature. When it ETBs, tap enchanted creature, and enchanted creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. There's a Red Cap Melee hanging out here. Single red for the instant, deal four to a creature or planeswalker. And then if you targeted something that wasn't red, you have to sacrifice a land. And then Clockwork Servant, three mana for the two, three. And if you paid Adamant when it ETBs, you draw a card. Yeah, I think especially with us being pulled in like a number of different directions here with a blue card, a black card and a white card in your case or a white blue hybrid in my case. 
I would just be happy to grab Clockwork Servant here, sort of hashtag delay the decision. Unless you're in like a hyper aggressive deck, I like this card quite a bit as like just a three mana two three when you need it or a three mana two three draw card later in the game or on turn three if you've got a pretty strong mana base slanted towards one color. Especially if I had taken the owl, I'd be happy with getting my artifact count up a little bit. I think Servant's a good pick here. Yeah. Moving on to pack one, pick five. You see the following cards as options. There's a Trapped in a Tower, which is starting to be pretty late for that card here at pick five. One and a white for the enchantment, enchanted creature without flying, and enchanted creature can't attack or block or use its activated abilities. There's Merfolk Secret Keeper, single blue for the O4 that mills four when you cast its adventure. And then Fairy Guide Mother hanging out here as well. One mana for the 1-1 one, one flyer and has Gift of the Fae, one and a white, give target creature plus two plus one and flying as the adventure. Yeah, I think with my route through the draft, if I'd take an owl, I'd take Secret Keeper here because that you know pairs nicely with the folio. Um, even if we end up abandoning white, like Secret Keeper plus Sir Conrad sort of go well together. Um, but with your tactician in your pile, I think Trapped in the Tower is looking pretty appealing as well. And this feels like i mean i think it's sort of a signal for both i mean if we think merfolk secret keeper is the best blue common and i think i don't think a lot of people are on that necessarily but i think it's up there it's sort of like got a reputation from uh the arena bot drafts a few weeks ago um but i think secret keeper and runaway together here plus trapped in the tower and fairy guide mother i think you're seeing both blue signal and white signals here any thought to trapped in the tower with your root because it's also an enchantment to find with arcanus owl i think that's certainly fair my feeling is that the highest upside card I have is Folio, and so I'd like to take the card that goes the best with that, which is going to be a blue card that's on plan. But Trapped also goes well with Folio because it's just cheap interaction. So, you know, it's uh, I think it's very close there. Right. So to me, a Folio just could be a win condition in a control deck. You don't just necessarily need other mill cards to go along with it. That's sort of where my brain's at. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm much more thinking about Secret Keeper as a like cheap blocker rather than like being able to add to the folio mill count. All right, very cool. Uh, draft sort of rounds out pack one, pick six. You pick a True Love's Kiss Up out of a very weak pack where the only other cards really to consider are Mystic Sanctuary and Jousting Dummy. Pack one, pick seven, we maybe veer back towards blue black with a late drown in the lock. And then things sort of solidify out. You get a Silver Flame Squire. And you really honestly still at the end of pack one, you've got options for whether to go white, blue, or black. And I am a little ashamed to admit this. I'm looking at pack two, pick one here. I know. I took a fairy guide mother over a dance of the manse. Yeah, but you're you're the luckiest because you see what happens pick nine. Yeah, it comes back around. <laughs> Easy game. Easy game. You know, earlier this week, I made a choice in my draft about like what lane to take. I think it's like pick five. I saw an order of midnight and I was like, oh, this card's really good. And I was like still trying to figure out what my colors were. And I tracked that there were like multiple commons missing out of the pack. And I was like, I think that probably means that Bacon to a Pie or Reeve Soul were taken here over the order of midnight. And that doesn't mean that black is open. And that ended up being the case. And I never would have like made those decisions of like looking at the rarity of cards missing and thinking about what might have been taken there if it weren't for you. I never think about that before like talking to you about those decisions. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Just something I've never really considered, but it definitely helped me out earlier this week. So I'm going to be adding that to my arsenal of tools. Yeah, it feels good, man. All right. Let's move in to some keep or mull decisions here. So I think this will be a little bit easier to digest than last week or what's the play episode. Um, but, you know, pay attention, follow along at home. We'll have uh, have some imager links for you if you need them. Um, so this first keep or mull decision is from a red white deck that I drafted here. It's red white knights. Pretty streamlined. Got a couple inspiring veterans, you know, two fairy guide mothers. 
at rare, we've got one opportunistic dragon. That's sort of the, the splashy thing at the top end. We got, you know, burning yard trainer, Sir the bold, a couple of removal spells outflank, slaying fire to trapped in the towers. The decision here is that it's game three against a mono red opponent. We've seen a main deck blow your house down. So I took out my two brimstone trebuchets because I didn't want them to get more value from that awkward card. I've also brought in my own because I've seen uh, two trebuchets from my opponent. Sideboarding tech. Sideboarding tech. So just a little uh, little preview for what's going on later in the episode. We're on the draw here in game three, and your hand is the following. We'll go up the curve. So you have one land. It's a planes. Then you have two one drops in Fairy Guide Mother and Venerable Knight. Then you've got an Embereth Shield Breaker and a Jousting Dummy at two. And then Blow Your House Down at three and Lonesome Unicorn as a three drop slash five drop. Yeah, and we're on the draw here. So I think this is a lot more interesting, I think, on the play. So either way, I'd be very tempted to keep this hand. On the draw, I think I'm definitely keeping this hand. So, and here's why, because... You know, if you go to the odds calculator, and we've talked about this a lot on Twitch, or you know, if you actually use a hypergeometric calculator or whatever you do, your odds in two draw steps, assuming you've got 17 lands, you have 17 lands here? I do. So assuming you've got 17 lands, you've got 16 left in the deck, in two draw steps on the draw, you're about 75% to hit your second land drop. And I think you just have to take those odds, especially when your second land drop really turns your hand on. So even if you hit a second planes, you've got the Lonesome Knight, Jousting Dummy, and Fairy Guide Mother to play with for a few turns. And that's mm-hmm. more than enough to keep yourself alive. And then if you hit Mountain, your whole hand is turned on. And I think this this hand has the tools it needs to be aggressive enough to pressure. And I think I would keep on the draw. I'd be tempted to even keep on the play because of the two one drops, but probably would ultimately end up mulliganing. Yeah, it's close. I think against this specific opponent, if you know you're against a mono red aggro deck do you just have to take your lumps here because it's essentially like you get two draw steps so let's say you lead on venerable knight on one and then if you miss you still can play guide mother on two and that's still like a fine one two punch because venerable knight is essentially like a two mana two one um I, I don't know and i feel like any land lets you cast jousting dummy the following turn if it's a mountain then that opens up being able to cast shield breaker I think it's, I don't, I really generally do not keep one landers on the play, but I think it's, it's close enough and knowing what your opponent's trying to do that I I might consider keeping it. Though I guess the flip side of that is like, well, you know, you're against an aggro deck and if you stumble or get behind, you're probably going to lose. So maybe it's too risky. What do do you think? I don't know. I kind of like where you're at. I think you can say you've essentially got two draw steps on the play here. I, I think I would keep. Yeah, that's crazy. So I think the the real big important takeaway here, and I think this just comes from us having a lot of reps in these situations that like taking those 75% or really like anytime I have like 70% or higher chances for like, you know, hitting those outs, I think you just have to take them. Magic is like a pretty high variance game that when you have those kinds of odds, you just have to get behind them and just be like, look, 25% of the time, I'm probably going to lose here because of this decision. And I think you just have to be okay with that. And you, so then you also, by the same extension, you need to make sure that if you hit your hand is working yes. and is doing some good things. It can't be like you need to hit your second land to cast your one, two drop, and then you've got four drop, four drop, four drop, five drop in hand. That's not good enough, right? You need a hand that starts to do things on two, and then with your third land drop starts to do some very good things. Because otherwise, it's not really worth the risk, in my opinion. And like, obviously, if this one land is not a plains and it's a mountain, it's a very easy mulligan because you don't have those two one drops unlocked. Right. And so we should back up and talk a little bit about the hypergeometric calculator thing for people that maybe aren't familiar with that. 
So this was introduced to me via Twitch and it totally revolutionized my world as far as keeper mole decisions. I'd not ever really considered like the fact that your odds were different to draw lands on the play or the draw or things like that. So this was an immediate level up moment for me. And so what you do is on Twitch in somebody's chat that has MTG by it, you type in exclamation point odds and it'll tell you how to input the information. But essentially you're saying like the number of hits you've got in your deck, how many draws you have to hit one of those cards and then how many of those cards you need to hit. So for example, like in that scenario, if we wanted to check the odds of lands in our deck, we would say we've got 33 cards left in our deck. We have 16 hits left because we've got 16 lands left in the deck. We have two draw steps to find one of those lands. You would type in exclamation point odds 33, 16, 2, 1, and it spits out that you're like 74 point something. I don't remember what it exactly is, but I've just done it enough to know to trust that on the draw, I can keep a one lander and I'm expected to hit my second land on time. Right. And this hand supports that notion of you got to make sure that when you hit that second land that your hand is functional, that it's not just like I hit my second land that unlocks one two drop. But what I really need to do is get to land number three on time, you know, like that. Don't don't trick yourself into thinking, well, it's a one lander on the draw, then I keep it. All right. Moving on to the next one. This is another one of your decks here. This is a sweet blue green splish splash some red deck. You've got four Maraleaf Pixies. Am I reading that right here? Yeah. Shout out to Blue Green. I, I got to tell you, Ben, shout out to Blue Green has become a meme on my Twitch channel now. Has <laughs> it really? That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I love Blue Green. It's so much fun. And then you're splashing Grumgully the Generous as well as Red Cap Melee and a Searing Barrage for some removal. And you've also got you've got an Out Muscle and an Unexplained Vision as sorceries. Then at the top of the curve here, you got some big stuff. You've got Thunderous Snapper, a.k.a. Snappy Pappy, <laughs> and Moonlit Scavengers, Prophet of the Peak, Toon Veil Tree Folk, Beanstalk Giant chilling up here. So you're definitely very much trying to get a Marleaf Pixie out and ramp into some bigger threats and crush the opponent via bigger threats and card advantage, which is what Blue Green does. And I think it does it very well. Yeah, I love Blue Green because it's like good on its own. And then it's also, I think, the best home for splashing around. And Marleaf Pixie wheels on the regular. Yeah, that's the thing is like, I don't think out of pack one, you can expect it. But once you feel like that's sort of where your seat is supposed to be, any Marleaf Pixies, at least on Magic Online, seem to be able to consistently wheel because I think it's, you know, just one of the most pigeonholing of those uncommons, but it's so good for what blue green's trying to do. Right. And we should probably say what your mana base split is. So you've got 17 lands in the deck, eight forests, eight islands, one mountain. Yep. All right. So it's game one. You're on the play and here's your hand. You've got a single forest in the two drop slot. You've got crashing drawbridge, jousting dummy and curious pair. So you'll be able to make a food token on turn one, but that's not really that exciting. And then you've also got Marleaf Pixie chilling out. And then towards the top of your curve, you've got a Fierce Witch Stalker and a Two Unveil Tree Folk. So just the lone forest in this hand, several two drops, and not much else to go on. It's so tempting to keep this hand because any land lets us go unlocking three cards in our hand, Drawbridge, Dummy, and Curious Pair. An island really gets this hand going because we get to play Marleaf Pixie. But even that, like, again, this is a sort of a situation where we have to draw basically two lands to feel like our hand's really explosive because what we want to do is go Pixie on two and then like four drop on turn three. I just think it's while it's very, very tempting to keep it that on the play, you've got a mulligan this hand. Yeah. And I think even on the draw, you're probably mulliganing this hand, right? Because you need to find exactly island for it to be functional. And so then you've only got eight hits out of your deck in two draws, which is not going to be good odds. Right. Yeah. I think I agree with that. This would be much closer for me on the draw, but I think I, I think I would come to that same conclusion. So for thinking you're on the draw and you need to hit an island 
and we're typing that into the hypergeometric calculator. You're typing in odds 33821 because you've got eight islands in the deck. Mm-hmm. And that spits out that you're about 44% or so to hit, which is not great odds. But I think you could also make the case that, you know, a second forest does make your hand functional in that you can play Jousting Dummy, Crashing Drawbridge, Curious Pair. So if you're on the draw, I think you could probably keep, but it'd be a little bit of a yikes. Yeah, I also think like keep in mind other things you can draw. Like, you know, we have, I don't know, a Wildborn Preserver, though that's not great because that's a very mana hungry card. But more importantly, there are two Rosethorn Acolytes in the deck that we could draw as well. And not that we want to draw that instead of a forest, but like, let's say our next draw was a forest and then we drew a Rosethorn Acolyte. Well, then we can play Marleaf Pixie because we can cast uh, the adventure half of Rosethorn Acolyte to filter our mana. So you have like more outs maybe than you think of just your lands. But I still think this is a really, really tough keep on the draw. Right. As part of our last episode, CMU Stewart was typing in Discord about compound outs, like mm-hmm. a term from poker that are, it's essentially outs that you can hit that open up more outs for you in future turns. So I would imagine like something at poker equivalent and correct me if this is wrong because <laughs> I've only played Texas Hold'em for change with my friends. But <laughs> like, so you've got, you know, you've got like two diamonds in your hand that aren't going to give you a straight or something, but then, you know, the flop hits you. If you hit two more diamonds in the flop, then you've got outs on the turn in the river or whatever to hit your fifth diamond to get a flush. Like sure. some, something along those lines. Yeah. So I thought that was super interesting to me as far as magic. And I don't know exactly how to put a mathematical number on that, like like the way the, the odds bot spits out on Twitch. Mm-hmm. But just making sure that you keep in mind that you're going to have cards that lead you to open up more outs in future turns. Yeah, for sure. So we ship this hand back. And what do we see on our Mulda 6? So on your Mulda 6, your hand is much better. You got three lands here. Island, Island, Forest, Double Mara Leaf Pixie, Fierce Witch Stalker, and Thunderous Snapper. So you're going to have to bottom one of these cards. What are you thinking here? Well, I can tell you what I did, and I can tell you what I think is right, which and unfortunately they are not the same thing. Well, so I'm looking at this hand, I'm going, great. I've got Island Forest. I've got two Marleaf Pixies. I can ship this third land. I may, I like, probably, I'm likely to draw a land in some number of draws. But I think that's sort of incorrect because when we think about planning out our turns for this hand, I think the dream here is Marleaf Pixie on two and then one of these two four drops on turn three. And so absolutely what card doesn't fit in in that equation? The second Marleaf Pixie. The second Marleaf Pixie. And I think while it's very tempting to make a like slightly greedy thing and go, I'm going to bottom the island and I'm going to draw land in the next couple turns. If you don't, your hand kind of falls behind and you don't get to do the thing that you're deck is trying to do so i think it's correct to bottom the pixie here yep i agree that it's correct to bottom the pixie here and this is something that comes from i think just experience over time i've gotten burnt enough by being really greedy like especially if you're getting ready to do something really powerful like this mm-hmm. there's just no reason to be greedy right yes. because the thunderous snapper is going to catch you up with cards as well and it's so punishing if you don't get to play your third land drop on time and we're, you know, we're trained to not flood, not flood, not flood. You don't know what you're going to draw. And so often there's just been too many times where I've needed to hit a land and it's been three or four turns or I've needed to 
hit action, you know, it's been three or four turns. I think this is just the sort of thing that comes with time and experience and it just keeps coming back to bite you. Like you fell for it here and I, I'm sure I do as well. But yeah. More often than not, I make the conservative play in these situations and I, I would have bottomed Marleaf Pixie here. Yeah, I, I think I just didn't quite think through, okay, what are what's my actual game plan here for the next four or five turns? And that doesn't include casting the second Pixie at all. Certainly if my opponent has removal for the Pixie I play on two, then I'll be a little bummed, but like I'm still stuttering and not ramping into my four drop early. So it might as well not exist anyway. It might as well just be a land. So I think bottoming it is correct. Right. It doesn't fit into your curve and it's significantly less powerful. You know, I might let you double spell on turn five or turn six, but I still don't think it's worth the risk. Right. I mean, it's still a good card, like a two mana, two, two flyer is so good, but we're trying to like really use it to have this explosive start. All right. Moving on to our next keep or mull decision here. Another shout out to Blue Green. This is one of my peak Eldraine (laughs) decks here. Uh, We've got Blue Green with the old Triple Splash. So five color deck. We've got Grumgully, Cauldron Familiar, and Faber Elder. This last one mostly just for the memes to like say that I was full five colors. That Faber Elder is the like one green white rare vigilant that like taps for mana equal to the colors among permanents you control. Card's not good. Um, But like really good splishy splash deck. We have Gilded Goose, two golden eggs, Heraldic Banner and Fey of Wishes as fixing. So really uh, able to, you know, not impact our mana base super hard for the these splashes. Game one on the draw. Here's the hand for you, Ben. We've got two forests, Witch's Oven in your one drop slot, Shambling Suit and Faebro Elder at three. Fey of Wishes at two, but you're really hoping to be able to cast Granted off of it. So thinking about it like a four drop. And then at the top, we've got a Garenbrig Paladin. Yeah, and your mana base is... 10 forests, seven islands. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So on the draw here, it's really tempting to keep this hand on the draw, I think, because if you hit any land, you've got Shambling Suit online. Mm-hmm. That'll let you dirtle around for a while. You're, so let's see, you've got, so, and then how many cards do you have that actually help fix your mana for blue or white? You've got Goose, Two Eggs, Banner. So you've got four ways to get white for the Faeborough Elder. And then you have seven islands plus any of those four cards that get you to Fey of Wishes. Right. So you can then go granted for whatever land you want out of your sideboard. Huh. It's close. It's really close. This is game one. It's game one in the dark. You don't know what you're up against. Game one in the dark. I think I would keep this. I think Shambling Suit is enough for me on three. So we're going to have the Witches Oven in play. Shambling Suit will be a two, three. If your opponent goes two drop, three drop, you can presumably trade with one of those two cards with Shambling Suit. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you got to trust your deck that you're going to do something to be able to. And if you if you if you don't grant it, maybe you just run Fae of Wishes out. And right. You'll be able to hit land drops in a Garenberg Paladin. I don't know. I kind of like this hand. <laughs> it's close, I think. I was just very afraid of stumbling. I felt like this deck is powerful enough that the way it loses is to stumble like this. Whereas... I think if we are able to have some sort of defensive speed curve that then will let us stabilize to get our more powerful engines going. But you talking about it makes me feel pretty tempted to keep it. I don't know. I'm looking. I, so I went back and looked at the <laughs> deck list and I'm seeing Deathless Knight in this deck list as well. Oh, yeah. We've got we've got a lot of dead draws we could hit as well. Right. That really don't help us out at all. So the like going and looking at the at the actual list and not just what's in our hand, I think the amount of dead draws we have in our deck right now 
make me a little scared. So like, let's let's uh, put a, a like number on this. Like, what cards are you looking to draw in the next two turns? What cards am I hoping to draw? Yeah, or I guess even three, right? Because because we're on the draw here. So like seven islands, two golden eggs. Seven islands, two golden eggs, gilded goose. I mean, that's like 10 things. Like you're probably supposed to keep this. Heraldic banner would be okay. Well, you need a land, but yeah, assuming you're going to hit a land in the next three draws, which I think you have to. Yeah, but then I'm also like, if we go and list the number of cards I'm not excited to draw, (laughs) it includes... Cauldron Familiar, Double Flaxen Intruder. Well, the thing that's great about Cauldron Familiar is you just discard it to hand size and you've got Witch's Oven. Stop. (laughs) Grumgully, Deathless Knight, Wicked Wolf, Sage of the Falls, Stolen by the Fae, Runaway Together. There's like about the same number of cards that I am very unexcited to draw. And I think that leads me to want a mulligan in the sand. Yeah, I think it's quite close. Yeah, I think you, you're looking at the deck and, and the greediness that I'm I'm trying to uh, to accomplish here. I think you probably just got to got to ship it, which is what I ended up doing. I think it's very tempting to keep, but I think it's just a little too slow. So I ended up shipping it and getting this new hand. We got to figure out if we want to keep or mold this. And then if we want to keep it, what we're going to bottom three lands in this hand, two islands in a forest, Flaxen Intruder, Fae of Wishes, Grumgully the Generous, and then Deathless Knight. <laughs> this is ridiculous. What's wrong? What's the problem? <laughs> so I would also mulligan this hand because you're just not doing enough, right? So Flaxen Intruder as a 1-2 is basically not worth a card. Fae of Wishes, you're not happy playing as a 1-4, and Deathless Knight and Grumgully are borderline uncastable. So I think while this looks reasonable because you can play two cards out of your hand, you've got a mulligan and go to five. Well, I kept it. I don't think I, I think keeping this is fine. I mean, Deathless Knight is obviously garbage, so we're shipping that if we keep this. But like, I think the thing about this hand that I like a little better is like if your opponent is aggressive, you have things that are defensive speed. Like, you know, if they if they're aggressive, they're going to have X ones, I would imagine. So you can drop the Flax Intruder to trade it off. Fae of Wishes should brick wall them. And if they're slow, then your hand is great. Yeah. Your hand is great is a bit of a stretch. Well, yeah, it's got Fae of Wishes. How can it lose? Yeah, I agree. These are both like tricky hands and also cer- certainly tricky with the the greediness of this deck. Yeah, I think that's what's throwing me for a loop. Yeah. Well, look, this is a trophy deck, Ben, so you better get behind it. Oof. All right. So if we look at our next one, this is your same deck here. We're in game three of the finals. Your opponent is very grindy, has Garrick, Trail of Crumbs, and the Cat Oven Synergy. And you are on the play here. Your hand is this. You've got four lands, three islands in a forest, Witching Well, Sage of the Falls, and Deathless Knight. Yikes, Ben. This is already basically a mulligan with the Deathless Knight in your hand. And I should say, like, I recognize that the Deathless Knight is, like, crazy in this deck because we only have 10 forests. Um, I have a Witch's Oven, which is why I kept it in the deck. And, like, also, I do think that when the mana base gets going, it's not actually that ridiculous to cast. But I recognize that it is a yikes. Um, so a couple factors here, and this is where I think it's much different when you're in the dark in game one, not knowing what your opponent's doing versus now you really know what's going on in this back and forth. Like you're both on very grindy, slow decks that take a while to set up. And so maybe a hand like this isn't as punishing, but I do think this is a keep or I think there are a couple factors to consider here. One is that we're on the play, which makes this hand a lot better. So Witching Well can help set up to probably find us something to do in the interim. 
Sage of the Falls makes Deathless Knight a lot more palatable in hand because once Sage of the Falls hits on five, which it's going to on time, you imagine, because you already have four lands in hand, that Sage of the Falls can pitch Deathless Knight and then you'll be able to get it back later. So there's like some value to be gleaned there. So I think all of that Being on the play, knowing what the matchup is, having Witching Well to set up something to find to be able to do in the interim before you hit Sage of the Falls on five, all of that adds up to me deciding that this is a keep. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm I'm on board with all that. I think I would even keep this in the dark. Really? Yeah, you got to trust your deck. I love I love that phrase. I use that a lot. I use that as a tiebreaker for myself a lot on stream when I'm like, uh, this is a, this is close, but I'm going to trust my deck. I mean, so Witching Well is like the scry too. So you've essentially got four looks at finding a two or a three drop here. Mm-hmm. I think I think and then you can crack Witching Well on four worst case scenario. Yeah, like if you get matched up against a hyper aggressive opponent that curves out on you, you might be in some trouble. But yeah, but otherwise it's going to be fine. Yeah. yeah, agreed. All right. So moving on to our next Keeper Mall here. Get a very good blue-red draw two deck here featuring none other than the Royal Scions themselves. So as your draw two payoffs, you've got sort of Royal Scions, Fairy Vandal, Double Improbable Alliance, and then some really strong ways to draw two. You've got Witching Well, Golden Egg, you've got Sir Eleonora, two Tome Raiders, so lots of cantripping cards here, turn into a pumpkin, got a good suite of removal, including Searing Mirages, Slaying Fire, and two Scorching Dragon Fire, and then splashing Grumgully the Generous here to make some 2-2 fairy tokens off of improbable alliance which is pretty sweet that's some good tech if you've not had a chance to do that yet and your mana base is 18 lands 10 islands seven mountains and one forest yeah so important to note that the only ways to cast grum gully are the one forest or the one golden egg yeah pretty tough so you're looking at your opening hand here in game two after winning game one against mono green and you've got the following cards in hand four islands a mountain slaying fire and Grumgully the generous this is a yikes i mean mulliganing feels bad but so does this hand i think like with only one forest and the egg for Grumgully, it feels like it's already kind of a mulligan like yeah you have ways that you can like loot this away um but not in hand and we have so many cantrips or like ways to get velocity through our deck that i just don't think this kind of hand does anything yeah i agree this is a pretty clear mulligan for me not not enough action here i think so i think there's something tempting about like you're like well i'm on the draw but i think i'm more inclined to mulligan on the draw because you get that extra draw stuff right all right so taking a look at one of mine here uh this is a red green beatdown deck that i drafted on arena and you're pretty low to the ground aggressive you got double ginger brute double weaselback red cap wildwood tracker all as one drops and then, you know, typical three drops, Raging Red Caps, Red Cap Raiders, four drops, some solid commons, double out muscle, double witch stalker, um, some removal in slaying fire and heraldic banner and ferocity of the wilds to pump your team. 17 lands here, nine forests, eight mountains. You're looking at this hand, game one on the play. You got mountain, mountain, forest, forest, fierce witch stalker, out muscle and a garen brick. Yeah, I think this is close because it's tempting to say, well, I can cast all the spells in my hand, basically. I'm probably going to hit land number five on time for Paladin. It's probably going to be a forest. But this hand doesn't really do what your deck is trying to do, right? Don't you want to be like one drop into Halberd or into like double one drop into, you know, you want to be applying a lot of pressure, especially on the play. I I think I would ship this back. It's interesting because I chose to keep this. And I, I said, I've got, so my, my way of thinking about it was the opposite of the way you're thinking about it, that I have 
five one drops, two two drops, and like four three drop creatures. And if I draw any one of those cards, I'm pretty happy curving creature into Fierce Witch Stalker, into Owl Muscle, into Garenberg Paladin. I think that's going to be enough to win me a game of Magic the Gathering. You kind of got to draw it next turn if it's a one or a two drop. Obviously, if it's a three drop, you're fine to draw it next turn. But if like, I don't know, if you draw a land next and then draw Weaselback Redcap, you're not happy. Yeah, I, well, so I think I think I'm sort of of the mindset that Fierce Witch Stalker, Garenberg Paladin, and Outmuscle are enough to win a game of Magic. Yeah, that's I think, definitely I think Fierce Witch Stalker is good enough, and it's going to be on the play. I would mulligan this, I think, if I were on the draw. But on yeah. the play, Witch Stalker coming down on four, guaranteed. If I have any other threat that I draw in the meantime that I can play ahead of Fierce Witch Stalker, I think I'm putting on enough pressure with two or three drop plus Witch Stalker plus removal plus Garenberg Paladin. I think Garenberg Paladin just wins games of Magic. There's just another awkward thing I think about this hand where it's like, I mean, you're fine playing Paladin. It's just a 4-4, but it's like any mountain you draw feels really bad. But I guess that, that's just going to happen with any hands. I, I think it's very close. I, I like your your argument about just Witch Stalker being great on the play on turn four, period. Right. And last one here as far as Keeper Moles. So you're against a different opponent, same deck, and you've already mulliganed to six. You go to a six-card hand that is Forest, Mountain, Mountain, Wildwood Tracker, out muscle, fierce witch stalker, and okame adversary. That's the three and a green, two, three uncommon that when it connects with your opponent, you draw a card. Which one of those seven cards do you bottom for your six card hand to keep? Oof. Well, I think it's definitely you're on the play here or the draw. I guess that doesn't really matter. You're on the play. So it's not one of the lands and it's not wildwood tracker because that's your turn one play. It's one of these four drops here. Um, I don't think I want to pitch okay adversary because there's a chance that that could be a two or a three drop for us. Um, we also can cast it if we draw a mountain, whereas Witch Stalker needs a second forest. So I think that narrows it down to being Witch Stalker or Out Muscle here. This is tough. I, I think I would get rid of the Witch Stalker because it means I need to draw a forest for it. And I like having threat threat removal spell like bottoming a removal spell here feels a little bad so i think i would ship the witch stalker so that's where i was at initially when i was talking through the hand and this is something that i i got from watching alex's stream i want to want to see what you think about this so i was initially where you are on like i've got to keep the wildwood tracker and i'm trying to decide between fierce witch stalker and out muscle and then the more i thought about it so Alex said this one time when I was watching a stream and it really stuck with me like we're not running our opponent over with this hand mm mm-hmm. And I think if we're not running our opponent over with this hand, we want to keep our most powerful cards since we're already down a card. So I think you're supposed to pitch Wildwood Tracker here. And I think since you're on the play, if you assume you're drawing any land, you're going to have a play on turn four that's a good card, preferably the Fierce Witch Stalker, but maybe Brick on Forest. But you've still got Okame Adversary, worst case scenario. Plus, you've got all of these one and two drops in my deck. I've got five one drops, two two drops, four three drops that I can draw. So I've got a lot of really good draws over the next two or three turns to make this hand a lot more functional. If I'm on the draw, I feel more inclined to pitch the tracker. But on the play, I feel like I want to, for the same argument of, well, I've got a lot of good draws out of my deck. That makes me say, yeah, so then I'm going to keep the tracker because I'm going to like trust my deck that it's going to find me some good two or three drop to pair with this to like do what my deck's plan is, which is mostly, I mean, even though these two hands have sort of not indicated that, but it's mostly to try and run people over with your your powerful one, two and three drops. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. It's very close. I, I like that argument of pitching tracker, but I'm just then a little worried about, you know, 
then you kind of need to draw. I guess you don't need to draw both lands and spells, but you kind of do. You need to draw a forest and some cheap spells. But I think you can't. You, I don't. I don't think you can pitch tracker on the draw because I'm not happy with fierce witch stalker coming down as my first play or okay, my adversary on the draw. But it's just a one mana one one. Right. You need something else to make it good. It's essentially doing nothing. Right. In in both scenarios, unless you draw something else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Yeah. So did you end up shipping the tracker? I did ship the tracker. Yeah. And I was very happy with that decision as it turned out. But I don't I think it's interesting to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Ooh, I love these. We should do these more often. These are these are good discussions. Okay, so moving into our second half of the show here, we're going to talk briefly about sideboarding in general, but then using sort of Throne of Eldraine as a uh, as a lens, as I said earlier, to to look through these. So looking at like categories or thoughts for sideboarding, I sort of put these into like five, six ish categories here. We've got play versus draw as a consideration, creature sizing, uh, what I'm deeming silver bullets, uh, shoring up holes. Who's the beatdown slash what is the matchup and then anti-sideboarding. So looking at this first category here, play versus draw. So assuming that players always choose to be on the play when they've lost the previous game, I think you can sideboard with this decision in mind. So if you feel like you're against a faster deck, if I'm on the draw, if I have an aggressive deck, like let's say I have an aggressive white deck, I will try to side into a deck with more defensive speed and side out, maybe if I'm you know, a blue deck or something, a card draw, dirtily spells. If I'm splashing around a lot, if I'm on the draw against an aggro deck, I'm probably going to try and make my mana base more consistent, maybe cut some of that splashing stuff, cut my more powerful top end, just try and go for more consistency. So for those- Cut your Deathless Knight, for example. Cut your Deathless Knight, for example. I don't know why you would run Deathless Knight in a- green blue deck but you know sometimes you end up there uh but if i'm in like a mono white deck or an aggro white deck i might bring in some bartered cows and ardenville paladins to maybe stop the aggressive deck give myself a little three three that brings along a food token or a large blocker that's hard for them to deal with uh if i'm in a blue dirtily deck i might try and bring in some defensive speed like some queen of ice or corridor monitors and maybe cut that unexplained vision because I don't feel like I'm going to ever have time to cast that, that sort of thing. Right. So there's that famous uh, saying that Bennis has, you know, if you're in the aggro aggro matchup, you always want to be the person on the draw because you want to be the person with the extra card after all the dust settles after you guys have traded resources, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then if you are on the draw, you can make that even more in your advantage by trying to side into what you're talking about, like a slightly bigger, you know, aggro deck in that matchup. Yeah. I think creature sizing is another thing you can really think about as far as sideboarding. And, you know, you've got sort of couple categories here as far as X1s and large green monsters. And, you know, if you're facing down a person playing, you know, youthful knights, whatever, cards like Curious Pair, Corridor Monitors, Tome Raiders, anything that's going to leave a body lying around and trade favorably with an X1. Youthful Knight has been the bane of my existence lately. That card blocks, it's either very good or very not good. There's not a lot of in between for it. <laughs> I played against a really interesting blue white control deck that had like four youthful knights and they were just never attacking. They were just there to like gang block stuff and I found it so difficult to push through damage. Yeah, I ran into that as well a little bit on Arena when I was playing. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you can be facing down large green threats like Garenbrig Paladins and Two and Veil Tree Folks and whatnot. And against those things, Roving Keep, I have cited in my fair share of Roving Keeps. Love that guy. I, I've been made fun of because I'm always like, you know, towards the end of a pack, I'm like, oh, we don't have a Roving Keep yet. I'll grab this here. And people are always like, is that playable? And you just like always want those when you're against a mono green deck. Yeah. Ardenvale Paladin, if you can cast it reliably as a 3-6, also can do some serious work against those big green monsters. 
And Lash of Thorns is an instant death touch trick. Maybe, you know, on some sort of a 1-1 you've got lying around can also do some serious work against big green creatures. Yeah, also good with first strike on that youthful knight. Absolutely. I think another thing as far as creature sizing to consider for Eldraine or any format is there's usually a magic number of some sort where, you know, st- removal lines up well against this number and then past that it doesn't, etc. And I think in Eldraine, that number is four toughness specifically. There's a lot of things that have trouble on the ground punching through a four toughness creature and a lot of the removal that doesn't kill things once they've got four toughness. Like, so for example, Iron Craig Pyromancer, the red rare as an O4, you know, blue and white just doesn't have any way to get that off the battlefield if you're facing down a draw two deck unless you've got a glass casket. Yeah. So thinking about that sort of sizing stuff like Scalding Cauldron, Scorching Dragonfire, kill these things and then past that, they don't die to those common removal spells. And that magic number is usually dictated by the top commons and the top common removal Mm -hmm. and how those things line up against each other. So I think there's a lot of things to consider there as far as, you know, cards with four toughness versus sideboarding. So for example, if you're aggro and your opponent has a lot of Merfolk secret keepers or some corridor monitors to block with, you've got to make sure you have ways to punch through. And what what are some ways you found to do that in the format? You know, I try and side out of, you know, those derpy twos or at least like try and side into things that can maybe punch through those. So if I've got some stuff with pump like weaselback red cap or jousting dummy even i mean i know that's six mana to pump into it but you can at least threaten to push through those o fours or one fours um maybe getting some equipment out of the board like a giant skewer or a rose thorn halberd to be able to pump up the power of your creatures pretty reliably and consistently i think that's important yeah and the other thing i found is i've had to side out in certain matchups cards like scalding cauldron or even scorching dragon fire there's times when you just don't see targets depending mm-hmm. on what you're facing down like if you're facing down blue green scorching dragon fire is not going to be a card very often against blue green no and that might be a time where you're like hey i ended up i mean if you're so lucky you go like hey i can swap out this dragon fire for another searing barrage right right absolutely i think you know if you're facing down those decks that have a lot of o fours one fours if you have extra copies of garenbrig paladin you probably won't because i think people are starting to come around to how good that card is mm-hmm. but if you do citing in that card that card's very very good like rare status against some certain matchups when you play a garenbrig paladin your opponent just goes well i can't ever beat that and Conversely, if you are that defending player and your opponent is relying on combat tricks, adventures, equipment maybe to punch through the damage, then if you've got extra, let's say, runaway togethers, which is a card that I'm usually like, I'm happy with one of these in my deck, maybe two. But if you end up with extras of them, which you sometimes do if you're a blue deck, then bringing those in and waiting to block while you have the two mana up so you can blow them out or get the value from it, I think is a good plan. Right. And I think we saw that in your and my latest showdown video specifically. Yeah. Uh, Like I I was that aggro deck, you were the control deck, and you held up Runaway together. You were choked on mana, which felt bad, but you held up Runaway together over three, four, five turns. And I just couldn't attack into it because I needed to use plus two, plus two adventure to punch through and I was going to get blown out if you had Runaway together. Yeah. I mean, you pegged me for it both times I had it, but you still were like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I know you have it, but I can't do anything about it. Right. So we were in this awkward stalemate where I couldn't attack and you couldn't. I I essentially stone rained two of your lands. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Uh, Silver bullets is the next category we're going to look at. And I think this is sort of the level one way people think about sideboarding of like, well, I've seen artifacts and enchantments. So I'll bring in return to nature or true love's kiss or, you know, there's usually a plummet effect here. We've got fell the pheasant to take care of flyers. I think there are some other like more niche things I, I would 
point out here that don't forget the return to nature can grab stuff out of the graveyard. So you can deal with a cauldron's familiar. If your opponent has the cat oven combo, you can deal with deathless Knight. Maybe if your opponent has that, that they're going to recur, you know, so that, that, that third line of text does have applications. Think about mystical dispute against blue decks, memory theft against adventures or expensive bombs. I think like targeted discard or just like mind rot in general is good. If you think your opponent has like a six drop that they're going to be holding on to until the end specters shriek against heavy black decks. I always say that I think rally for the throne is sideboard against rimrock knights, but could also be sideboard against like an aggressive deck. If you think the life gain is going to matter, if you can adamant it. Um, And then you can also think about like really niche interactions like, Hushbringer can turn off the Great Henge, allowing your opponent to like get the counter and draw cards. Or Ooh. Tall as a Beanstalk, turning your creature into a giant to protect against your opponent's cast off wrath because that kills all non-giant creatures. That sort of thing. I've done that one before. Oh, really? Yeah, I've not done Hushbringer Great Henge. Have you done that? Unfortunately, I was in a matchup with like in a coaching session actually, and once we were done sideboarding figured out that that would have shut off the opposing Great Henge. But so we unfortunately didn't bring it in. But I now know that that is a thing. Yeah, that's sweet. I think, you know, I have found myself just in Throne of Eldraine sideboarding a little bit less than in other formats, Mm -hmm. because a lot of times I'm running very close to playables because I'm often trying to lead myself out to two or three different decks during the course of the draft. Have you experienced that at all? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are times when I end, this is generally when I'm ending up in a monocolor or near monocolor deck. I feel like that's when I uh, don't have sideboard options. Like I recently drafted a mono green deck that had literal no sideboard options. I was just like, well, I kind of, kind of felt like I forced this or like it wasn't as open as I wanted, but like I had some very powerful stuff. I had the feasting troll King, et cetera. I had the good, like one drops and then was just playing a bunch of filler artifacts and just had no sideboard or your deck is very powerful and you have the optimal build like that blue red Royal Scions, double improbable Alliance deck. I had like, I had stuff I could have brought in, but like that was just the best version of that deck that I could have built. And I never felt like I wanted to change anything. So there are those, I think, two different times. But then there are times where I do feel like I have a good toolbox of like, you know, half a dozen cards. And these times when things come up of, hey, I'm on the draw, I'm on the play, my opponent's faster than me, my opponent's slower than me, where I do feel like I'm able to make pretty good four or five card swaps to, to transform my deck a little bit. Right. I have been trying to make an effort as the format's gone on, just as far as the silver bullet category goes, making an effort to make sure if I'm in those colors that I do pick up a Return to Nature, a True Love's Kiss, a Fell the Pheasant, whatever, even if it means I have to pick them semi-highly, just because they do so much work when you bring them in. Yeah, it feels really bad to end a draft as a green deck or a white deck and not have a way to blow up an artifact or an enchantment, because they're so prevalent most of the time. I think another category of sideboard cards we can take a look at is something just shoring up holes that your deck's got. And a lot of times I think removal is the number one thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. You know, a card like Festive Funeral is a bad card. Like you're hoping to not put Festive Funeral in your deck. And depending on the deck, you know, you can make it into a fairly reliable removal spell. But even then, it's not going to be trading up on mana very frequently. But sometimes you've just got to run a Festive Funeral because you need a way to interact with your opponent. I think just making sure that you've got ways to interact or you've got enough cheap creatures or, you know, any of those sorts of things based on whatever matchup you see, like if your opponent, for example, going back to Ironcrag Pyromancer, some rare that's going to stick on the battlefield that's going to have a continuous effect, you need to make sure you have the maximum number of ways to get that card off the battlefield. And if that means bringing in clunky removal, you got to bring in clunky removal. 
Yep. We sort of touched on this on like the play draw aspect, but who's the beatdown slash what is the matchup? Specifically, I found in my blue decks needing to side out slower cards like Folio Fancy sometimes or counterspells, um, especially from on the draw. I think counterspells are generally a little too slow. If you're against some sort of red, white knight deck, you're not really hoping to like hold up didn't say please on the draw because in theory, your opponent's already gone like two drop, three drop, and now you're behind and you can't afford to hold up that mana. So I'm bringing in good blockers or cards along the curve like Queen of Ice, Card or Monitor or Mistford River Turtle. Yeah. Queen of Ice has done some serious work for me and against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's a sideboard card, basically. I mean, unless you're like blue-green adventures, I don't really think blue has a tempo deck, but it's really good against aggro decks. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're an Ethan Sachs, per se, or <laughs> you're me when I've gotten a Fires of Invention deck, and if you've got a deck with a splashy, greedy mana base, you might need to board into just something more conservative. I can't tell you the number of times I've had a sweet deck and I face down aggro and I think, okay, well, we've got to, we've got to get a little more conservative here. And you cut, you know, you cut your splash and you bring in cards like Queen of Ice or whatever, just to make sure that your deck lines up better against what your opponent's doing. Yeah. And then the last category here is like anti-boarding slash I want to put in like pre-boarding here. So uh, I'm going to talk about pre-boarding because it's on my mind and not in our show notes here. But like, let's say you see a blue-white deck, but you don't see a trapped in the tower or a charmed sleep in game one. But like you have to assume that your opponent is blue white, that they've got that sort of artifact enchantment based removal. And so then bringing in return to nature's or true love's kiss, even if you haven't seen those targets for it yet, I think is fine or bringing in a fell the pheasant in that matchup, that sort of thing. Uh, I think also maybe assuming if your opponent's on like mono white adventures, if you haven't seen a fairy guide mother, it's probably fair to assume that they have one and maybe siding out your trapped in the towers just to sort of mitigate that potential blowout, I think is a responsible thing to do. So not only thinking about the cards you've seen, but the cards that are likely to exist in your opponent's deck. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, going into the anti-boarding level, you know, you can take out a card like Wishclaw Talisman against, you know, if you're facing down a deck that's got better bombs than you do, your Wishclaw Talisman all of a sudden isn't worth a card. Or if, if your opponent has things like Malevolent Noble or Embrace Shieldbreaker to then, you know, do their own combo with Wishclaw Talisman where they get to go get their rare and then they can get rid of the Wishclaw Talisman so you don't get it back. Then all of a sudden that card looks a lot less appealing. Yeah. And then you can also get a little fancy. And I know this sounds kind of fancy and sometimes it is, but sometimes it's really good. If you cut your silver bullet targeted cards when you see the answer from your opponent. Now, you don't want to do this if it's like so drastic, but like sometimes you might if like, let's say you've seen Fell the Pheasant from your opponent, it might be a good idea to side out your one or two flyers because then you get the opportunity of stranding that card in their hand. Now, if that totally wrecks your deck's game plan, maybe you can't do it. But if you can support it, if you feel like, hey, I don't need these couple Vantress Paladins, I can like do another thing, then cool. Now your opponent has this dead card in their deck. Yeah, I think I've done that the most in cube. Yeah. Like, like you've got two or three creatures and your opponent's got some creature removal and you can play a creatureless deck or whatever. The ability to shut off two or three of your opponent's cards is really powerful. But you got to, again, like what you said, you can't cut the best cards in your deck. You can't cut a folio of fancies or whatever. If right. you see an Ember, Ember shield breaker from your opponent, you just got to hope it doesn't line up. Right. It's, it especially feels bad when it's like a free spell like that, like Ember shield breaker, like much better if it's a return to nature or true love's kiss that you can just say, all right, cool. You never get to cast this. Right. Absolutely. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap us up. 
Lots of sweet stuff we talked about in that episode. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. If you want to check us out on Twitch and Twitter, I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome, Mr. Spelled Out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. I think that's going to be enough to win me a game of Magic the Gathering. But that's not what your note says here. That's not my note. You wrote that. I didn't write that. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Why would I have written that under your... Oh, it should say close but clear keep. Oh, okay. <laughs> or no mulligan or something. <laughs>